You can listen to episodes of Conversations with Joe earlier than everybody else and completely ad-free on Nebula. When you sign up for Nebula, our creator-owned streaming service, you not only get access to ad-free content from my channel, you also get bonus episodes in my videos and exclusive series not available anywhere else. Sign up for Nebula by clicking the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe to support the podcast and get more eye-opening content. This is how weird my life has gotten lately. I did a video about a month ago on the Arecibo message and METI, which stands for Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence. They're a group that kind of split from SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and they advocate sending radio messages out into the cosmos uh, to try to contact alien species. It's a controversial topic, but it's one that I find interesting. The video didn't actually explode, kind of underperformed in relation to the other videos, but that's okay. Uh, you know, they don't all have to be hits. But then a couple days after it went out, I got a short email from a gentleman named Doug Vakoch. Uh, thanking me for covering this topic. Now, Doug Vakoch is a name that I knew well at this point. Doug is the founder of Medi, and I'd seen in several videos while I was doing my research little interviews from him and stuff, and I almost used a clip or two of his interviews, but I chose not to for copyright reasons. Um, but then there he was, in my inbox, <laughs> praising my video. Is this real life? I immediately thanked him for his kind words, uh, asked if he'd be willing to do an interview for my podcast, and he agreed. Now, people who follow this podcast are aware I've been really behind on posting new content, even just audio versions of the videos, but this is exactly what I always wanted to do with this podcast. I cover huge topics on my channel, topics that I only have time to scratch the surface on, and I love the idea of having experts on the podcast who can you know, expand on the points that I make in the videos, clarify some things, and, you know, tell me when I'm flat out wrong. So Doug was kind enough to share some time with me, and we talked about Medi, how it got started, how he got involved, what some of the detractors are saying about what they're doing, what their goals are, and the conversation went to some places I really didn't expect. We got into how messaging other species sort of clarifies who we are as a species ourselves. And how the importance of doing this work is in just getting us to think outside of our nations and our tribal groups and, and look at the big picture, which, you know, I'm all about. It was a great conversation, and I really want to thank Doug for doing this, and of course just for, you know, reaching out to me in the first place. That was so cool. Uh, you know, to get feedback from, from people who are experts in the topics that I talk about, that's, that's just awesome. So this goes for about an hour, maybe a little less. We did have a few sound issues along the way. His audio, for some reason, kept going up and down. I fixed it the best I could, but there might still be some issues, just some fair warning. So with that said, enjoy this conversation with Doug Vakoch right after I pay some bills. This audio eargasm is brought to you by Cankerboy.com. Cankerboy is a subscription service for people who get regular canker sores and mouth ulcers, which is about 20% of the population, if you can believe it. When you sign up, you get the Cankerboy supplement delivered to your door every two months. It's a pill that, when taken daily, helps prevent canker sores from forming. So, you know how you're always smearing that goop that numbs your mouth? That's what most canker sore treatments do. This one keeps them from forming in the first place. Much better in my book. So you get the first two months risk-free. If it doesn't work, you'll get your money back. I call that the pain-free guarantee. So you got nothing to lose but the pain. Give it a try. That's cankerboy.com. C-A-N-K-E-R-B-O-Y.com. All right, let's get back into the show. Well, let's just go ahead and jump in. So I wanted to hear a little bit about your background. Um, I, I know that you worked with SETI for what, like 15 years or something like that? That's right, 16 years. 16 years. Uh, and... Uh, my background is in history and philosophy of science and in psychology. So I'm particularly interested in um, learning about other intelligence because so far the only intelligence we know about is the intelligence on this world. And you know, typically we think of that as human intelligence. Of course, there are a lot of other intelligent species here on our own world. But I think the, for me, the um, big benefit of making contact with another civilization is having another opportunity to understand ourselves better. I mean, we certainly understand that we see it when we encounter other people from other cultures. Mm. Uh, it gives us a new way of looking at ourselves saying, wait, is, is this how families work? Or is this how we are supposed to relate to other people? And it's not so much that we want to learn a better way, but just to be able to appreciate ourselves in our own distinctiveness. So I think that's, that's what motivates me about uh, trying to make contact with another intelligence. Cool, yeah, I did a video on the Drake equation way, way back when. And I think that was a point that I kind of came to when I was talking about it was that ultimately it's not about what number you come up with, it's really more about what do we learn about ourselves and our position in the universe. Um, to me, that's, that's the more interesting thing because you know when it, that whole um, 
the fish is the last to know what's in the water kind of thing, you know? So like when you're in it, you don't think about it very much, but then when you kind of extrapolate out, you learn more about yourself. And so I think that's where the guaranteed payoff is. I mean, the payoff we want is to encounter another intelligence out there to learn directly. But in the process, we really do need to reflect on ourselves. We need to think about how in the world do we communicate? What is a universal language? Uh, to what extent is our understanding of the world something that's universal and how much is it idiosyncratic to us? So I think in the process of uh, talking, trying to talk to an alien civilization, we need to reflect both on how we go about communicating in the first place and then what do we want to say? What's valuable? What do we care about? So what was the, the studying that you did maybe early in your life that got you kind of intellectually primed for that kind of thing? You know, uh, when I was in my teens, I was really interested in understanding how things work. So I was interested in science. The big problem I had was I was interested in so many different sciences. So I like <laughs> physics and astronomy and biology and geology and chemistry. Uh, and, but in the real world, you have to specialize in one of these things, right? Science is so specialized nowadays. Yeah. But there's one area where it's actually an advantage, not a disadvantage, to have an interest in a lot of sciences. And that's the search for intelligence beyond Earth. So uh, uh, in, in the uh, earliest days, I was interested in, uh, I assumed I would become an astrophysicist or a biologist, but I also became increasingly curious about, um, you know, what is it essentially that it means to be human? Uh, and so that's where my original interest came from. And then in, in, in my teens, I started looking at the kinds of messages that have been sent out, like the most famous message sent from Arecibo that was uh, sent out when I was still in high school. Mm. And, but I began reflecting, is it really going to be that easy? And so uh, I started thinking, yeah, I, I this, this is going to be a lot tougher than we've always assumed. So that's sort of intellectually one of the things that's really kept me hooked is trying to be optimistic enough to make the effort at, at contacting another civilization and being realistic enough to know that this is going to be tough if it's possible at all. Mm -hmm. So what's your opinion of the Arecibo message in terms of like how it was structured, like uh, how Carl Sagan and Frank Drake put that together? Do you think it's reasonable, I, smart? I think, I think it's reasonable. I think it, it remains um, in the same way that Frank Drake's first uh, SETI search back in 1960, Project Ozma, set the precedent for how we do SETI today. Mm. I see the Arecibo message in the same way, that it really said, what's the basic principle we use? So that extraterrestrials won't understand English or Swahili or Mandarin. <laughs> what language, though, then do we use? Well, if they can pick up this radio signal, that means they're radio astronomers. And so they probably know some basic math and science. I mean, you're going to be a pretty crummy engineer. You're not going to build a very good antenna if you don't know two plus two equals four. And, and so that's the basis of the Arecibo message of starting with counting, then going on to describe the physical universe. You know, they should know about chemical elements and the fact mm -hmm. that they have a different number of protons. And then that becomes a key for describing our own biochemistry. Uh, if the extraterrestrials can see, it explains what we look like, um, what our technology, the telescope looks like. Um, so I think that the general principle is good. And so then in the same way that um, we build on that first SETI search, Project Ozma, uh, to expand it, that's, what I, that's where I think we're at now with interstellar message design. You know, the today's SETI searches are a trillion times more powerful than that mm -hmm. first search. We don't stop with looking at one frequency uh, at a couple of stars. We look at billions of different frequencies uh, up to a million stars. I mean, that's, that's the goal uh, mm -hmm. over the next decade. But has message construction become even 10 times more sophisticated uh, over the last 40 years? I doubt it. And so, uh, so at the same time that the fundamental principles of the Arecibo message uh, are compelling, I think we can do more to unpack it. So for example, not a bad message if you have three minutes to send something at 10 bits per second, but you know, as you mentioned in your video, a lot of this is determined by the event. This was to commemorate the refurbishing of the telescope. And so, you know, Frank Drake and Carl Sagan said, how long can people sit still? Well, three minutes is about right. And what sound, <laughs> now, and of course, people can't hear the radio signals. 
but you can transduce it into this audio, you know, beeping at two different frequencies. Well, 10 beats a second sounds pretty good. So, so that gives us, you know, the, the, the little over 1600 bits of information. Uh, and in the real world, you'd want to send a lot more information, but, but it's also important to keep in mind, um, even if we're signaling stars that are nearer, so you don't, you, you don't have to have as much power to send something credible, uh, you know, you still want to keep it on the small side because otherwise, mm -hmm. and too much information, it's going to be harder to extract that. So I guess as, as we actually took uh, it for our organization, um, METI, so which stands for Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence, we took uh, the Arecibo message as a starting point and then um, modified it in certain ways. So for example, the target that was uh, overhead at the time of this commemoration that the Arecibo message was sent out was a globular cluster of stars, M13, 25,000 light years away. Yeah. What that means, any reply, it's gonna take 50,000 years to get back. We can surely do better than that. <laughs> so, so when we transmitted uh, in um, October of 2017, and we did this uh, to commemorate the 25th anniversary of a music festival in Spain called Sonar. So this is a project initiated and led by the Sonar Musical Festival. Yeah. And they contacted us at METI to create a scientific tutorial so any extraterrestrials that get it might be able to understand it. So that message was different from the Arecibo message in three critical ways. First of all, the target is a lot closer. So uh, the transmission was from uh, a facility in northern Norway, north of the Arctic Circle uh, in Tromsø, Norway, called ISCAT. It's used typically to study uh, the aurora borealis, the northern lights. So the scientists send radio signals and some small fraction bounce back, and they can say something about the three-dimensional structure of uh, the aurora borealis by mm. studying it. We can use the same technology to target stars. So we sent a signal to the nearest star that was visible from that location that has an exoplanet uh, that's known to be in its habitable zone. And so this is a star uh, called Leuton's star. And of course, astronomers aren't satisfied just to give it a personal name of the scientist who discovered it, but you also have to have a number attached to it. The number is GJ273. And then the exoplanet around it, um, there are a couple of them. And the one called B, GJ273B, is in the Goldilocks zone. So mm. it's, it's the planet, it's uh, at the right distance from its star. There's not too hot, not too cold, just right temperature to support liquid water. So that was our target. So one distinction between the message we sent uh, and the Arecibo message was we targeted a nearer star. You know, it's... It's not going to be a quick reply if we get a reply back, but it would come on Sonar's 50th anniversary. So 25 years from now, we could get a reply back. Hmm. Uh, second difference is that instead of sending it just once, we sent that same tutorial three times a day, and then we went back a day later, and then two days later, and sent it over and over again. And that's because our own protocols for detecting signals here on earth require that you replicate it. You know, if someone finds something good, uh, you want to be able to check in with your colleagues at other observatories and found it, fi find it again. Otherwise, we have something reminiscent of the wow signal that yeah. was discovered yeah. at Ohio State University. It's this, wow, this is off the charts. We've never seen anything like it. And unfortunately, we never see it again. So what do you do with that? So we wanted to avoid that. We don't want to send a wow signal to the alien. So let's repeat it. <laughs> Uh, and then the third thing is um, we wanted to unpack it. So uh, I, love, I love the ambitiousness of the Arecibo message. I think more realistically, we should take a smaller piece of that and go into more detail. So instead of trying to tell them, here's what we look like, and here's what our DNA is, and here's the diagram of our telescope and our solar system, we said, let's fococus on what we in the extraterrestrials have in common there's radio signals and let's give them the basic math and physics you need to describe radio now the the interesting thing is we got into this process was you can get a lot done with some basic arithmetic so you explain how we count and then you add numbers and divide numbers 
Well, as soon as you're dividing two numbers, you can start talking about the length of different sides of a triangle, and soon that's trigonometry. And before you know it, we're describing what sine waves look like. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about the radio waves, and then we point to the radio waves um, with the message itself. So we talk about time and changes of time by sending pulses of different durations and making direct reference to that. We talk about frequencies of the radio waves by sending at two different frequencies and then talking about those precise frequencies. So, you know, it'd be great if we could actually send something like the Voyager plaque or the Pioneer plaque or the Voyager recording Pioneer plaque. You can hold in your hands, you see it. You can't do that. So you got to help the aliens to reconstruct it. And then the last thing that we did that was different than the Arecibo message is we didn't assume that the aliens have vision. I mean, vi vision's been great for life here on Earth. It's evolved 40 times independently, yeah. but our atmosphere is conducive to light coming in. We can see things. If you live on a murky planet, light may be no good for that. And so you may get around with another sense. And so we didn't want to bind ourselves to a sense of vision. So again, we, we're paying homage to the general principle of the Arecibo message. Start with the essentials. Think about what you have in common. But now unpack it a bit more, add some redundancy, and um, give some additional clues to what it means. Mm -hmm. and, and target someplace that you have the potential for a response in a human lifetime. So what you just said about the visual thing, I thought was interesting because before I really looked into the Arecibo message, I didn't realize that it was a radio signal that was supposed to create a, a visual image. You know, I thought that was actually kind of, kind of interesting. Um, because you can't expect that the people on the other side would have, you know, a radio receiver <laughs> that, that can unpack just like, you know, our radios here. But um, so on that, on that note, I'm curious, how, how did you get around that with yours? If you didn't have a visual component, like how are they supposed to interpret it on their end? They're interpreting it. The, the, the initial structure is very similar to the signals that the Arecibo sent out two slightly different frequencies. Mm. Um, so it's a binary signal, but instead of using that to convert it into a, a, a bitmap 23 by 73, uh, which is what you get uh, when you break down this 1,679 pulses, right. so two prime numbers. Uh, instead, we just, we sent uh, chunks. We sent a byte, uh, you know, eight bits that we could use to show them first how we count. And then ultimately, introduce symbols, so new combinations of those eight digits that were reserved for addition, subtraction, multiplication, mm -hmm. division, equality. Uh, and so you need to give some examples. You, you have to have something that you can have in common from the beginning. And in the same way that the Arecibo message starts with the idea of number, that's what we attempt to communicate. I think the challenge is, you know, you raised this good question in your video, will the aliens really recognize this, uh, this representation of numbers in a binary form? Our goal was to unpack it a bit, give additional examples. Uh, and, and so all of the content of the Arecibo message is good, but I think each part deserves its own message. And so as we get ready for the next round of messages, um, we're having messages that focus on chemistry. D just focus on describing the periodic table of elements and really unpack it instead of giving the cryptic clue 167815 and hope that the extraterrestrials can figure out we're giving the atomic numbers of a few chemical elements right. essential to life on Earth. Um, or we want to describe the human body, but not just as the stick figure. So we're developing a series of images that show the human body in motion and not just from a distance, but zooming in and showing, you know, here's what our head looks like. Here's what our eyes look like. This is how we close and open our eyes. Here's how we move our arms. Uh, so I think that the basic principle is good, uh, but uh, uh, the air stable message is interstellar communication at its infancy. Uh, we're ready to move into our adolescence at least, but we're still far from being a mature approach. So in, in terms of future messages, are you following up on that same location that you did the last one, the sonar and kind of like giving them more information there? Or are you like taking kind of a boilerplate message that, that you're happy with and you're kind of sending it to different places? From we're, we're shifting now uh, to an approach that uh, distinguishes SETI from METI. Uh, insofar as 
in METI, where we're actively sending messages, we can do what scientists call a true experiment. So uh, like other astronomers, SETI scientists are doing an observational science. You see what's coming in, you try to make sense of it, you, you make inferences about what you're finding. But it's not like going in a lab where you can manipulate the variables and you know, see what happens. Mm. Uh, but when we transmit messages, we can actually send different messages to different stars. So our approach is to target nearby stars like Leuton's star, but not just that one, but to one group, uh, send a message that talks about the periodic table of elements, uh, to another group, send a more pictorial message, to another, send a message that's like a computer code uh, that starts describing human behavior, uh, something even as seemingly esoteric as altruism. And so drawing some parallels, the challenge always is once you describe human behavior, since aliens don't know about human behavior, how do you link it to the real world that we have in common? So we're drawing some parallels between the ways that when we cooperate with one another, say by food sharing, we can all stay in good health. And you know, if, if, if we become overly competitive, that can actually be detrimental. And you know, in, in hunter-gatherer societies, cooperative groups do well and they survive. Those who don't end up dying. We can crudely describe that in terms of what happens to the mass of our bodies. Do we remain robust or does it get to this critical lower level where we die? We're drawing an analogy between the transfer of mass between stars in a binary star system. So if we can describe stars, which astronomers on another world should know about, that gives us a way to begin talking about changes of mass over time that you see in human beings when they behave with one another in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So our goal is to send those three different types of messages to different groups of stars and then keep track over, and this is one of the real challenges of messaging, is to keep track so that 20, 30, 40 years ago when the first reply might come back, we remember what they're replying to. I mean, the, the most frustrating thing is if it's as if you get an email from a friend that you emailed months ago and then they reply, but you don't know what they're replying to. Right. At least let's at least remember that in case they don't splice on the original message. In my case, it's maybe a couple of days. <laughs> what are you talking about? Oh yeah, send that thing. Something about what you were explaining a second ago just made me think of like cave paintings. Um, just sort of like a, a little, a little bit of a blueprint of the of what we are. Just yeah. kind of saying that we were here and, and this, is, this is what we cared about kind of thing. It, it made me think about, I traveled to uh, Santa Fe this last summer and there's some uh, petroglyphs. Actually, I think it was outside of uh, Albuquerque, not Santa Fe. But anyway, these, these old Native American petroglyphs and these rock formations and stuff. And um, I don't know why, but what you were saying, it made me think of that. This is sort of like a, a brain dump. <laughs> I, I think so. But, and, and it's, it's a good indication, too, because what did the artists making those paintings have in mind? What were they conveying to themselves, to others? And then, accidentally, what do they convey to us now, hundreds, thousands of years later? So I think that's what we, we need to always be aware of, and that we can expect extraterrestrials to be familiar with the idea that there is a certain amount of ambiguity in interpreting what's going on mm -hmm. and that we should be um we should be humble enough to recognize that what seems obvious to us may not be obvious to another civilization and that's even if we have something like math and science in common because as we look at the history of math and science on our own world, we see that we can have radically different ways of describing the universe, the same universe, models the created species. by the same species. Yeah. But, and, you know, go to the uh, early 19th century, and there were three independent mathematicians in Europe who said, you know, over 2,000 years ago, Euclid laid out what are these obvious truths of geometry that are inviolable, like two parallel lines never meet. But what if you tweak that assumption and suggest that maybe at some point they do? Well, that created a mathematics that was a foundation for uh, an understanding of space and time as being curved. 
mm. you know, you, you can have a, a, a model in the traditional Euclidean geometry or non-Euclidean geometry. They both describe the universe in an internally consistent way, but at some level they're incompatible with one another. Right. So we might encounter that with alien mathematics as well. That's one of the things that's to me, like I love topics that maybe start just sort of interesting messaging aliens. That's an interesting idea. But then when you really start to dig in, you start to pick apart all these things that just kind of like, wow, I like, where do you even go in your brain? And, and one of those things to me is, I mean, how many species are there on this planet that we share a planet with that we can't communicate with? How much different would a species be on a planet that just happens to have three times more gravity or, uh, you know, a different uh, atmospheric composition. Maybe they don't have the same kind of hearing or visual like you talked about before. Like how much, how do you communicate with somebody that is, is living in a place that's completely foreign to what, what we understand, you know, and, and how they evolved there. Right. So, so their own way of engaging the world and communicating with one another is radically different than our way of communicating with, other humans here. But then on top of it, we have the constraint that we're trying to make contact with time delays of decades or even centuries and no face-to-face -face contact. You know, I, I love this idea uh, in the recent movie Arrival where the aliens come to Earth and you get a linguist in there and they can kind of mix it up and, and try different things. Um, but we don't have that luxury when we take the right. more realistic scenario of you know, it's really tough. To, it, it takes a lot of energy to travel between the stars. And at least so far, we haven't seen any evidence that they're here. Yeah. Um, that's one thing about science fiction movies, especially, I'm not bagging on Star Trek. I, I like Star Trek just fine. But but any, any, any TV show or movie where basically the alien is a human in green makeup or something, <laughs> you know, and, and it's like you... you I, I get a little bit annoyed by things like that. Like every planet you go to, the gravity is exactly the same. And we're breathing right. the same as everywhere else. When actually those fundamental things would be different no matter where you go. Uh, and, and I'm always like, when you look at the diversity of animals who are just on this planet with these conditions, to think that an alien somewhere else would be looking just like us, you know. Right. Or that, you know, that uh, universal translators will work. And, you know, of course, it's a concession to the audience. It gets tedious after a while. I think there are a few bright spots, little pockets of interest. So, for example, when uh, when they did the Enterprise reboot of Star Trek, the first half a dozen episodes or so uh, had their uh, linguist really grappling with the difficulties of understanding another civilization. But of course, then you have to shift to everyone speaking English uh, to sustain yeah. the show. Yeah, there's certain concessions you have to make. Yeah, yeah. That. But, but you mentioned Arrival. That's one thing I liked about Arrival was you never really even, I'm not spoiling this for anybody, but you never really even see the aliens, really. They're just kind of like these weird blobby things. And I'm kind of like, yeah, that's probably closer to what it would be like. They'd be so foreign to what we understand. It wouldn't you know, it wouldn't make sense. Yeah, I, I, I liked it too, um, because I thought it, it, it symbolically captured the impact of discovering an extraterrestrial. And again, I, I don't want to have a direct spoiler, but, <laughs> but I, think it's, I think it's fair to say that um, in that movie, by encountering an extraterrestrial, we had to rethink something as fundamental as our sense of time. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I don't think we're going to discover, say, that time runs backward when we encounter another civilization. But if we really can understand them and their way of conceptualizing the world, I think it will be as radical a shift. The challenge, of course, is that those radical shifts are also hard to understand because they force us to get out of our own assumptions. I think one of the biggest problems is just not treating uh, um, any message that we get is like a, this cosmic Rorschach test. And we're saying more about ourselves than what the aliens intended to say. Mm -hmm. um, well, I wanted to jump into a little bit of, you know, talking about the challenges of, of finding aliens out there. Like, I mean, it's kind of gets into the Drake equation and the great filters and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, that, that element of time is something that the more I've thought about it and I've looked into through doing different videos and stuff like that, um, the, the idea that we've only been around as a species, what, 200,000 years, maybe? I mean, that's debatable. And that, that's a blink of an eye in, in the universe, you know. And there, there might have been billions of different civilizations that have popped up in different times out there, but they've 
blinked out before we got a chance to really, you know, discover them or anything. Um, I don't know how you counter that with, with sending messages, um, but I was kind of curious what your thoughts were on, on that. that you, you're, you're absolutely right. I think, I think time, time is the greatest challenge mm -hmm. in, in interstellar communication. And yes, you know, there are a lot of different ways we can think how old are we as a species, as a civilization. And in terms, and, and in the Drake equation, we talk about this in terms of L, the longevity, how, mm -hmm. how, what's your lifetime as a civilization. And typically we think of that as how long have you been detectable um, for another civilization? Now, uh, the fact that there's life on Earth has been detectable for over 2 billion years. If you have a technology of the sort that we humans are going to have in a couple of decades, once we have uh, spacecraft uh, that are, are able to characterize the atmospheres of exoplanets. We're, we're not very good at it right now, but you know, you see oxygen and methane in an atmosphere in a certain combination. It's, it's gonna be a good indication that there might be life there. But you know, we have been detectable in our radio signals pretty strongly only since World War II. And so if that's what you think of the lifetime, so our lifetime, uh, of having a technology to communicate at interstellar distances, radio is less than a century. Now, if that's the norm in the galaxy, and you know, after that century, a civilization either annihilates itself in a nuclear war, or civilization crumbles because of global warming and environmental catastrophes. You know, if that's if that's the norm, hundred years, then we're not going to make contact. Because what's the likelihood in the 13 billion year history of our galaxy that our hundred years and the hundred years of an alien civilization are going to exactly coincide? I mean, it's, it's, as, it's as unlikely as yeah. in the course of a long night, you have two fireflies that each flick on for a second. What's the yeah. chance? It's exactly the same time. It's not going to happen. So the only way we can make contact is if the other civilizations have been at this a lot longer than we have, either listening or transmitting. Uh, and so that's a prerequisite to contact. If we don't have that, we, we can't uh, establish a communication with another civilization. And so then if we, if we extrapolate and say, well, are they going to stay at a steady state of technological development? Probably going to get at least a bit more advanced. Uh, that's when we start getting into this whole question of the Fermi paradox. Mm -hmm. If they've been at this and they're, they're, millions of years more advanced than we are, uh, even if you can only travel at a small fraction of the speed of light, that still gives civilizations a long time to be everywhere in the galaxy. And as Enrico Fermi said in 1950, where are they then? And so that's when you say, okay, does everyone know something we don't know? And, and <laughs> you know, there's, they're being very cautious and they don't want to transmit uh, into the universe. Uh, so the, the hypothesis, the, the response to the Fermi paradox that we're testing at METI is that other civilizations may in fact be out there, um, but they're watching us um, like we watch animals in the zoo. So it's called the zoo hypothesis. The human zoo, yeah. That's right. And so what happens if you go to the zoo and a zebra looks at you and starts pounding out you know, the, the prime <laughs> numbers or numbers corresponding to chemical elements that mm. are very essential to life on Earth, you treat that zebra very differently and it may be enough to elicit a response. So that's, that's in the most fundamental sense, the, uh, the hypothesis that we're testing by sending messages to nearby stars. And so the only way that works is if they're out there, they're just waiting for us to let them know we want to make contact it might happen, or it might be that we need to extend much further out and target not a handful of stars, but a thousand or a million stars. And so once we get to the point where we're targeting a million stars, this is now an inherently multi-generational scientific project. We're yeah. not used to thinking of science in those time spans, but mm -hmm. that's what we're calling for. That one thing that I wanted to kind of make a link to in the video and I didn't quite get there was, um, the um, the long now foundation like the clock of the long now just that sort of ultra long-term thinking that is kind of required when you start doing stuff like this you know we keep going back to the whole time thing um how far away is 
like there, there's got to be a border out there somewhere where it's like, okay, that that's a good candidate for life, possibly uh, planet and the habitable zone and everything, but it's, it's just too far away for it to be feasible for us to talk to. Like what's, do you, do you have a, a, a you know, I, I, I don't, you, they're, they're, <clears throat> you know, transmitting is not something that has been popular within the SETI community. So that's why we founded a new organization. And one of the, one of the critiques is that we as a civilization aren't used to thinking in long time scales. And so the 10,000 year time scale of the Long Now Foundation is too long because we can't do anything on those time scales. Our perspective is, you're right, we're really bad at that. And that's actually a, a, a cause of a lot of our problems that we right. think in terms of the yeah. short term. And so we, we need to change the way we do things. You know, I think the, uh, our strategy is to start close to home to target the stars that are nearest the earth where in a few decades you could get a response back. But uh, the long now uh, provides a wonderful model because they are building a, a clock courtesy of funding from Jeff Bezos at, at the same location where he's building his spaceport in, in uh, Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, a clock that will operate on a 10,000 year time scale to encourage us to think in those uh, timeframes. In fact, uh, one of the members of our board of directors, uh, Laura Welcher, uh, is from the Long Now, and Alexander Rose, their executive director, is on our advisory council. So we, we tremendously need this long-term perspective. But, but is there a particular distance uh, at which it's too long? I think the, the answer will come in the decades uh, into the future when we see whether we remember to look for the signal responses to the signals. Yeah. So our hope is that we will, but that requires undertaking this uh, technological and, and um, historical infrastructure of even being able to remember to archive the messages we sent. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you mentioned the detractors. There's definitely many. Yep. What you're doing. Um, a lot of people say you're going to bring Independence Day and it's going to be yeah. a disaster and everything. Is that just science fiction to you in, in your well, mind? Well, it's, it, it is critical uh, to take concerns uh, into account. And, you know, in your video, you do a nice job of saying, well, what happens if someone, you know, someone comes into the door of your house, you know, is it this serial killer? Is it your friend? <laughs> and so should, should you say anything? So do you dare say anything? Here's the, here's the bad news. If it's an extraterrestrial serial killer, they can already find you under your bed. Right. So, so I think there is this sort of a, a reassurance. I would, I would love it if we could really isolate the most critical danger facing humanity to an extraterrestrial that we can simply, uh, avoid anything negative happening by not sending intentional signals. I'm sorry, I, I, I can't give you any assurance that we can make ourselves any safer. You know, we've, we've sent out very powerful signals, radio signals, TV signals, especially in the 80s. So we've announced our presence. So I think for that, for that concern about um, that we are announcing ourselves to aliens who could do us harm, uh, that's not something that we should worry about. I mean, it's true that if there's an absolute twin of Earth's technology, we could let them know we are here and they, they haven't already known that they couldn't pick up our leakage radiation. But any civilization just a couple of hundred years more advanced than we are, if we look at how radio technology has advanced, uh, how our radio telescopes have gotten bigger in their aperture since they were first invented, a couple hundred years from now, we humans will have the ability to detect our level of leakage radiation out to a distance of 500 light years. So it's too late to be quiet. So, mm -hmm. um, but you know, the good news is we haven't seen any marauding aliens. And if there's a civilization that's really paranoid about competition, they've had 2 billion years to come here and wipe out life on earth and they haven't. So it may be, you know, I think the easiest answer to the Fermi paradox is it's no paradox at all. It's just the universe is big. It takes a lot of energy to travel between the stars. And even if there are civilizations out there in pretty great abundance, 
we've looked at a few tens of thousands of stars. So I think there's the illusion since SETI has been going on for over a half century, we've really, we've done the experiment. Mm -hmm. Nothing could be further from the truth that we've just started the search. Yeah. It's, it's funny how, um, you know, I'll do these videos and maybe it's something I didn't really know much about before I started researching them or maybe I did, but, uh, I usually I'll do the video and then my opinion on the subject doesn't really solidify until afterwards. And sometimes it's funny cause I'll do a video and then like a week later I look back, it's like, yeah, I don't think I agree with that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, but uh, sometimes that comes from all the comments that I get and all the different perspectives that kind of start to seep in and whatnot. But that kind of happened with this one a little bit. Um, I, I, I was kind of on the fence about it, you know, whether it's a good idea or not. And then after I did the video, the more I thought about it, I was in a conversation with a friend of mine and you know, some of those same arguments that you always hear were, were coming up and, and I was kind of like, yeah, but if, if they had the technology to fast travel faster than light and get here, like what could they possibly get from us? Right. Right. They couldn't get somewhere closer. And of course my, my buddy was like, well, it might not be our technology, but it might just be our resources like water. And I'm like, well, you can make water. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you have that technology, you can get those resources anywhere. Like we could get those resources in asteroids, you know? So, so why would they come all the way over here and destroy some species that they have absolutely nothing to gain from? And like, what would be the reason for that? And, and that's, and that's obvious to us now because now, you know, we look up at the night sky and virtually every star there now we know has planets. It has its own asteroids. Yeah. But when Stephen Hawking raised this whole question back in 2010 and said, nah, don't transmit to the aliens. We didn't know that rocky planets like uh, the Earth are everywhere. So there was a certain plausibility. I mean, still, is it really worth the energy to come to get something that you might find somewhere closer? Probably not, but I think it's all the uh, less justifiable now, the more we come to know about the universe. Mm -hmm. So uh, there have been several messages that have already been sent out, um, including a Doritos commercial. <laughs> Which was actually transmitted from the same transmitter we used in, uh, uh, in October, uh, the, uh, the IceCat the transmitter from uh, Norway. Yeah. That's cool. You know, I think the, the messages that include text messages, sort of tweets to other worlds, are the ones that uh, are probably less likely to be intelligible, at least the way they've been transmitted in the past. Now, I, I, even, even saying that, I think there's some information that an extraterrestrial might get. If we send examples of our language, it says something about the complexity of our communication system. So even if they don't understand, you know, mm. hello from the people of Earth, that they, if they can understand this as an example of our natural language, it gives them a, a sense of how complicated we are, uh, both in terms of our communication and our ability to think. So, you know, I, I think um, some of the messages that have been most interesting are the ones that try to go beyond the basic math and science. So the Voyager recording is still uh, mm -hmm. one of the richest messages, trying to capture a globally representative sampling of, of music, um, over 100 images from Earth, and, and attempts to unpack those images and show, uh, you know, objects that uh, are very... Um, near to the camera, uh, cover a bigger part of the area than the ones that are in the in the background. So just even trying to unpack how we see, because I think that's the that's the essential of any interstellar message that's going to be intelligible is to unpack our assumptions so that another civilization can understand them. And the hardest thing, of course, is the example of, you know, there's a fish in water. How do you, how do you even talk about being in water when you take it for granted? Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I heard the story about the ones where they just had people tweet, I'm like, you're sending Twitter out there. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're trolling but, aliens now. Great. You know, and I, but I think there's, there's a, a real appeal uh, of letting people more globally be involved. And I think there are also some um, middle ground opportunities where we can get more global discussion. I think that's one of the areas that has been most lacking is to truly get global input. Uh, a project I led a number of years ago was called Earth Speaks. And we asked people, what would you want to say to another civilization? And so, and one of the, one of the strong and intriguing messages of that was that people did say, 
hello from planet Earth. So they, they focused more on a sense of the commonalities. It wasn't, you know, hello from California, hello from Russia. Nationality. Um, yeah, hello from Christians or Buddhists, but yeah. hello from humankind. Uh, and so even if the text messages may not make uh, sense, uh, unless you, we really go about teaching aliens, you know, how to read English, I think we can get a sense of what is important to people and then find ways to encode that that may be more intelligible. I love what you just said. I think that's amazing. So th there, there seems to be a value, because we talked about this a minute ago, like sort of reflecting on ourselves, like it's more of a, you know, yeah. projection of, of our own beliefs and, and things that are important to us. But um, it's just that sense of, Yes, there's a component of we could communicate with an alien species, but but it's also it's kind of like that Earthrise photo. It's just like sort of a moment where you step back and say, "We're all in this this ball together." If you think big, right? absolutely, and and one of the things you'll hear from SETI scientists often is, you know, if we if we make contact with an extraterrestrial civilization, then the differences between humans here on Earth are going to be trivial in comparison right. to the differences that we'll have with extraterrestrials. So it's, you know, um, with the Apollo 8 mission, when they took a photo of Earth, the Earthrise, here's the first time we're now seeing Earth from a distance. The boundaries between nations disappear. You see this, this fragile orb floating in space, gives us a new perspective on ourselves. So the intriguing thing is, in this process of asking people, what do you want to say to another civilization? some of that's already occurring. Mm -hmm. We're already seeing ourselves as people of the planet Earth even before we've made the contact. That's beautiful, man. Yeah. No, it made me think, oh, well, I did a video on Voyager. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to see it. it was from I haven't Spotify, seen that. But, um, you know, they obviously got to talk about the golden record and, and all the images and stuff that were on there. And I started, you know, you can't help but get a little emotional about it because... Uh, what are the odds that some alien species would ever come across that thing? It's, you know, a billion to one probably right. at least. But, but if they ever did, by that point, we, would, we as a species, I think, would be long gone. Even if we survived, we would have sure. evolved into something else at that point, I think, you know. Sure. So it's sort of like a snapshot. It's like a message in a bottle. And it's sort of a lasting legacy that is out there somewhere that some other species, some other civilization could find and and it would, it would long outlive us, you know? And there's something and, really emotional about that. Well, there's something emotional and, and affirming of our worth. You know, mm -hmm. we talked about uh, if we make contact at all, it will inevitably be with a civilization that's much longer lived. And so then the, the question is, well, what in the world do we say? You know, we're not going to teach them uh, a lot of advanced physics. So what can a civilization that is as young as we are say that is relevant? But I think that's exactly the point, that, that our greatest contribution to an interstellar dialogue is to focus on who we are, that we, we are not a civilization that's been around a million years and we're confident we're going to continue to survive. We are at this precarious position when we don't know our future. You know, we are not a civilization that has learned to regenerate ourselves and we are immortal. You know, we, mm -hmm. we face our own death. And so I think some of these things that we may view as frailties are actually some of the things that make us most distinctive and could provide a reminder to a civilization that has long ago forgotten what it's like to not know what their own future is going to be. So, you know, I, I don't doubt that if there are aliens out there, they're going to be more intelligent or even wiser than we are. Um, and, and I think that bothers some people. What I would say is that they're never going to be more human. And, and I'm going to put my money on Homo sapiens as being the species in the galaxy with the most exquisite balance between joy and sorrow that you can ever find. So my money is on humans, and I think we only learn more about ourselves by trying to make contact with others. That's awesome. So let me, let me, get, let me get a number from you here. What percentage are you sure that there are actually aliens out there? 99% um, somewhere, okay. somewhere in the universe. Somewhere, yeah. Yeah. But what, how confident am I that they're close enough and motivated enough and we're motivated enough to make contact 
that's a complete crapshoot. I have no idea. Because, it, because I think that that's what practically speak, that's what the search gets down to. It's not a matter of whether there has to be life somewhere out there, but can we actually find it? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm increasingly optimistic. You know, 25 years ago, we didn't know if there were planets around any other stars. And now we know they're everywhere. The basic it's building amazing. blocks of light. Yeah, it's, fan, it's fantastic. So there's more reason to be optimistic all the time. Um, our technology for searching is getting better. So now we can plausibly look at a million stars in the next decade. And if they are out there and trying to make contact, uh, that's a big enough number that it makes it reasonable to find them. So, you know, I, I'd, I'd give you at least a 50% chance of finding extraterrestrials in the next 10 or 20 years if they're trying to make contact. But again, I don't know if they are. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. I think, uh, I think we got to try to wrap this up. Is there any place you want to send people to, to learn more about Medi or to sure. uh, come, come to our website, Medi.org, M E T I.org and check out what we're doing. And is that how you get funding? Like through donations and that kind of thing? That's right. That's right. So, uh, it is, a it is an area that needs visionary people, um, visionary people to do the work uh, and just as much to support us. So join our group. Cool. And, and do you take volunteers in any way? Or? Uh, at this point, we're not taking volunteers, but we'll be adding that in the near future. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. Uh, well, thanks, Doug. Okay. Thanks very much. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening to the Answers with Joe podcast. If you found this through the YouTube channel and you are not subscribed on iTunes or Google Play, I encourage you to do so. I'm going to be coming back with interviews and repeats of old videos just like this all the time. And if you found this on the podcast player, then uh, know I have a YouTube channel on, uh, well, on YouTube. Just do a little search for Answers with Joe and you'll find all kinds of fun science and comedy stuff to keep you entertained and thinking about cool stuff for the rest of the week. And you can find this in all my podcasts and all my videos at AnswersWithJoe.com. And if you enjoyed it, a nice review in the iTunes or Google Play Store goes a long way. And, of course, word of mouth means everything. So any, anything you can do to help get the word out, I really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. I will catch you next time. Have a good one.